Hello, you wonderful woman. Welcome to the Love is Coming podcast. I'm your host, Persia Lawson, one of the UK's most successful love coaches, according to the Times Magazine, and author of the book, Love is Coming. It's my mission through this podcast to help single women, specifically female leaders, get powerful, soul-expanding relationships that revolutionize your growth, impact, and happiness during your time on planet Earth. Let's get straight to it. Hey everyone, welcome back. Oh my, don't I have a treat for you today. I am speaking to the gorgeous Holly Matthews, who is the best-selling author of the Happy Me Project book, which actually won Health and Wellbeing Magazine's Wellbeing Book of 2022. It's very exciting. Holly is also a TEDx speaker, life coach, NLP practitioner, and founder of the Happy Me Project. And this is the most exciting thing, in all honesty, for me. She's also a former pop star and actress. She was star of the cult show by a groove which is set in Newcastle and I was so obsessed what was really exciting to me Holly as I mentioned to you before I hit record is I spent my like childhood and teenage years doing impressions of you and I didn't even know and so when we got to sort of know each other over the last however many few years it's been um I I, and I and I was like oh she was on bike grove and I I literally googled oh my god I used to do impressions of you like that's and not very well. <laughs> but I was a part of everyone that's listening is like, do the impression, do the impression. One of my friends were, went to drama school with, we used, I used to hear her like mumbling under her breath every time I would speak. And she would just be kind of repeating back the Geordie. <laughs> and I'm like, I can hear you doing it. I mean, my voice is massively softened. So I get like absolutely like abused online by people who are like, you're a soft, posh Geordie now. You've been away too long, which is probably true. That has happened. I I left Newcastle when I was 17, 18 sort of age, probably even a little bit before I was away. And if you spend your life kind of slowing down and enunciating your words, you definitely soften. It's all funny hearing. In fact, I let my 11-year-old watch an episode of Biker Grove that was on YouTube or something. And I let her, and she was like, oh my God, you sound so different, mom. You sound so different to now. And I'm like, I know I am now an, a grown adult. Um, and so, yeah, it softens a little bit, but I'm sure that um, some of your listeners will be able to still hear it. Okay, I'm going to have to get you to just do, and I'm sure you said this at some point, but my favourite, the easy, the like the short yeah. little one, just a simple, ah, uh, Sammy. What was that one? I don't even know what you just <laughs> That's how bad my impression is. So in, in my accent, it would yes, be, tell me oh, your... sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> was it, I, in my, when I used to do it, I'd be like, ah, uh, sorry. Is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've never heard anyone say it, but ah, uh, sorry. I would say sorry. Like, sorry. sorry. Sorry, okay, that's it. So I think when people do a Geordie accent, they often do a Sunderland accent, which is a city adjacent to, like, alongside New York, uh, next to Newcastle. But there is a, it's a softer accent right. than Geordie, and Geordie is hard work. So obviously, being an actor and having gone to drama school, one of the teachers there would give us a sentence which you can practice because I'm sure you'll enjoy saying it, and um, to get people into their Geordie accent. And his sentence was. John Paul Gortier's at the photo copier. John Paul, Paul Gortier's at the photo copier. Brilliant. I love <laughs> it. And if you attack the words more, you just get it more. Like if you think you're being over the top, you're probably not. Because for me, if I place my accent, if I was to do your accent and be a yeah. more an RP accent, it's a lot of work for my mouth. Like yeah. I have to 
completely place it in a different way. So anytime I've played parts in the past where I'm a, a more um, posh English accent, it hurts my mouth after a while. So I'd imagine for you, the the, the same would be true. Yeah. Such a different placement in your vo- in your mouth, yeah. and just a bit more work. We have to exercise a little bit more with our mouths, as Geordies. Yes, have to do all the the tip of the tongue, the teeth and the lips, all of those warm ups. Listen, yeah. I could sit and talk to you for about <laughs> a thousand hours about um, accents, but that's not actually what we're here to talk about. So we're going to go in a take a complete gear shift now. And listen, Holly, your the story of how you went from being that child actor and being in Biker Grove and, and pop star and all those things to what you do today and getting into self-development is is very, very powerful and is actually very tragic, but 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 also incredibly inspiring. So for anyone who doesn't know your story, would you share it with us? Of course. So as you say, I I had done, I I started as an actor when I was just 11 and I had always done self-development. I had, and from being really young because I was on TV and because it was, you know, it was a time when nobody was on TV. So it wasn't like anyone had a platform. And so I'd always delve into that world, which was always a bit bizarre to my parents. My dad's a welder. My mom worked in a bank and he's not a welder now. He'll tell me off for saying that, but he was a welder at the time. And so we weren't in that world of self-development. But I was exploring and trying to work out how do I be happy? Like while everyone's eyes are on me and I'm lacking in confidence and I'm going through these teenage years on telly. And so I was always doing self-development, but before it was a thing, before anyone really talked about that stuff, no one talked about their mental health in the nineties and the early two thousands, we just kept it quiet and hidden. And, but I was trying to work on this stuff and I always found it fascinating. I think it's so, and you will get this more than anyone that's so highly linked to those in that acting world, you know, we, we get it. We, we work on minds and brains and how we work. So I'd always done it. So it wasn't as big a jump for me as it was for people watching, but I had been in the world of acting and it's all I kind of assumed I would ever do. I kind of envisaged maybe in the future, like when I was old, whatever old felt like at that time, that I would probably go into psychology in some way. Like I kind of knew that there would be some, some turning into that area And then in 2014, my husband, Ross, we had been with two kids at the time, two young kids. In fact, so my daughter's Brooklyn, Texas. They must have been like, I mean, it's weird looking back because they were so young. And it's only with hindsight that I appreciate actually how frightened everybody else around me was and how much I didn't get, how much I was taken on. But my children would have been, one was nearly two, one was not quite one yet. And so they were babies, they were little kids. And my husband was diagnosed with brain cancer. And from the very beginning, it was the worst kind of brain cancer. It was rare. It was normally found in children. It was normally found at the back of the head. His was at the front. It was essentially like, you know, when you talk, we see these charities and I've done lots of stuff with a brain tumor charity and we see them, you know, they're doing all this research and brain can into brain cancer. But again, they're still looking for the, the biggest ones in brain cancer. So the, the standard brain cancer. So it was essentially like finding a cure for brain cancer is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Trying to find a cure for the one that he had was essentially like nobody's looking for the needle. Like it was mm-hmm. nobody's even looking. Like it's not. And so from the very beginning, we knew how bad it was, but also we had that 
we had an essence of naivety around it because we'd never been around cancer, which was a good thing. And both Ross and I lived very direct lives. Ross had um, Asperger's, so he was very black and white in his approach to life. And we were just both very direct as, as a couple as well in how we spoke to each other, how we dealt with life in general. And I think that served us very well when he was diagnosed because we would just we just hit it head on. And we were like, okay, this is what we've been dealt. So we'll just live and we'll deal with it as it comes. And he would say at every stage, okay, what's next? Like, what's next? And I'm, and he would also say, I'm not going to talk about brain cancer. Like, I'm not going to talk, like, what's the point? Like, you know, everyone wants to tell you when you get a cancer diagnosis of any kind or someone around you does. They want to tell you the worst case scenario. They want to tell you how much suffering you're going to have. And they don't do it in a horrible way, but they go, oh, my cousin had chemotherapy and it was horrendous and you've got to do this. And they wanted to tell him all of this stuff. And thankfully, because I had done work in self-development for myself, every time anyone did that, I was like, shut shut up <laughs> don't say any more words that will do thank you very much he will decide how this goes and I will decide how this goes for us as a couple so for three and a half years we had Ross with brain cancer we had he had two brain surgeries chemotherapy radiotherapy there was countless seizures there was countless stuff related to brain cancer there was the role reversal in and not role reversal but difference in roles in our relationship for us that suddenly I took on more and took on spaces that I didn't really ask for nor want nor feel comfortable in and that's different you know and not that we had a traditional you know old school kind of relationship at all but there were certain things that perhaps he would have done in the past and suddenly he wasn't so even that shift in our dynamic was something that we had to adjust to in 2017, in July of that year, Ross died of brain cancer. And in the, the May of that year, we so so if everybody else, I guess, looking in, they were like, well, you was diagnosed in 2014. You must have known how bad this was. But although we did, it's not like we were completely jaded. It's not like we completely were blind to what could happen. And me as, as his wife... I was constantly aware and really mindful, like, you know, the word mindful gets bandied around, but I was so mindful in the moment of we might not get this again. And I would take mental snapshots, like I would say, I'm going to bank this moment. And they weren't big moments. They were like, we're watching telly together, watching some crappy program. And I would like mentally bank that moment. Some people do like a mental snapshot or... I, w- I was so aware that this was this was borrowed, like it felt borrowed, and I was aware of that. And he would say as well, as much as he was very, um, you know, like positive, I guess he would say, "Look, this will kill me eventually. Like I hope, I hope I get 20, 30 years, but this I won't get away with this. This is too big. Like I'm not, I'm not like stupid enough to think that I will get away with this. This should have killed me. Like if this was 10, 20 years ago, I'd be dead meat. Like this is we're lucky that we've, we're in this, we're living in this time. Like." This is not, this is big stuff. And we, so we knew that, but I think the reality of the end stage of life is very different and felt very quick. So probably for everyone else, like, well, he had brain cancer. So it maybe felt like a, the natural progression in an awful way. But for us, like day to day, we didn't live with cancer. Ross was a huge character, you know, autism probably meant that he, you know, he was super direct. He was hilarious. Me as an actor embraced it all, loved it found it hilarious because we like embrace all of that. And I also have ADHD, which, you know, probably could together worked very nicely, balanced each other out a little bit. 
And so for me, that having that huge energy, even though we had cancer stuff intertwined in that, we just got on with it. We really didn't spend that much time overthinking it. We would just be like, okay, he's doing chemotherapy. Okay, today he feels shit. Okay, we'll do the other stuff around it. And we didn't live and breathe cancer, which I don't think is everybody's experience of it because they're reading all the things and expecting all the symptoms and Ross didn't. So a lot of the things that were expected of him to have, he didn't have. And I really believe, you know, when we talk about mindset stuff and the stories we tell ourselves. I watched Ross live that. He was having chemotherapy that his oncologist had told him had, he had nearly killed two children when he gave them it because it was so intense. And Ross was having that chemotherapy, walking out and papering, wallpapering the, the kids' bedrooms or playing football. He didn't have the expectation of that because no one told him he should do that. And so he just lived how he experienced it, which was something we can massively learn from. When he, in the May of that year that he died, we had been out in Turks and Caicos. We'd been invited out on a holiday. We went out there, had an amazing time. He came back. We were actually poignantly, it was his birthday the week after that. And me and the kids were sat at the kitchen table and I was getting them to do like presents, you know, cards for their dad, a bit of creativity. And we were writing and I found it this week, which is bizarre that we're talking about, but um, 32 reasons why we love dad and they were writing these out and we were we were writing them down and as I'm getting to the end of it I've turned around and he's having a seizure so I've got up and and dealt with that and we've gone to hospital and from that moment we lost Ross I lost Ross from that moment everybody else could pretend from that moment because there was pockets of Ross still around but when it's brain it's very different to other cancers it's more like dementia or a brain injury that they're not there. A version of them is there, but it's not them. And that was really hard for me to get my head around, I think, as, as well near the end, because he was such a huge character. When he died, it was, you know, from, from July, sorry, from May, June, so from June being in hospital fully to then being in the hospice for nearly a month. And he died in, in the hospice. And it was just such, it was such a shift for me during that time of, real learning and understanding of life death all of the things all the things I'd put in practice over the year all the things I'd learned over the years it was putting it in practice it was acceptance of the situation it was letting go of what I thought it was going to be and what it was going to look like and also at that time his death was in the national press and so it there was a lot of eyes on like I've never lived in a world where there wasn't a platform for me being on bike go from being such a young kid. Although it might not seem a big deal now. At the time, there was no t- there was no other TV, so we watched it. And yeah, so yeah. there's no Instagram. There was nothing. There was no Instagram, guys. Like so, I've never lived. All right, I haven't had the you know the superstardom, but I've never lived in a space where there wasn't eyes on what I was doing in some capacity, which is a quite a. When I actually look at that, I'm like, that's quite a weird experience in reality, but. So this wasn't that weird for me, but it was a different level and it was a different level of intrusion that I had not, you know, there's there's good and bad in that because when Ross died, I never had to tell anyone that Ross had died. It just didn't happen. Everybody knew. Like we went from my youngest daughter, she was just starting school just after he died. My We moved house. We got a new car. We moved, the kids moved schools and everything was fast. And I walked into that school, like, you know, the first, it was only a month after his death and everyone there, the eyes were on, every eyes was on, were on me. They knew what had happened. And that was a really interesting 
and scary experience in some respects, but also I never had to say to someone, oh, this is what the girls are going through because it was literally in the newspapers. And, mm -hmm. and so it was all of this space. And during that time, I had so many people messaging me and going, how the fuck are you, how are you dealing with this? Like, how are you doing this when I can't deal with the fact I've got ironing up the wall and life's just hard being an adult. And thankfully for me, you know, the work that we do in self-development I really do believe that the more you can do it before the difficulty, the better, but a lot of people will have gone through it, but you revert to what you know. And I knew this stuff. I did know it. It wasn't new stuff to me. It wasn't learning it in that time. I was, I was doing it during that time and I was having to really dig into the things that I'd known, but I already knew it. And so because I was talking about a lot of this stuff more and, you know, trying to help those around me as well, it naturally took me into that space. I had gone into, when Ross was diagnosed, I had gone into that world anyway, and I was coaching and stuff, maybe in a different space. But during that time, I, I realized as well, my way of coping is to create, not consume. Like that's my way of coping. In times of difficulty, some people hide under the covers I'm a person that needs to do and, and action things. And I also needed to find some kind of sense in something that made absolutely no sense. So I needed something good to come from something tragic that was painful. And so I, in the, probably the, a month after I put together in the most basic way, the happy me project as a online course, it was a 30 quid course. It was literally me at the bottom of the stairs with my phone voice recording some like vocal, some stuff, little, little bits for people to listen to short videos. And all I was doing was going, this is the basic stuff, bargain basement, the, the basics of what I do every day to not lose my mind. It doesn't always work, but these are the stuff that I'm doing. And I put it out into the world without pompous ceremony or any kind of fake fancy launch strategy and was like, this is this is it. And within months, I just started to see people really like resonate with it, with the, the honesty of it and how I really like to find the basics of self-development and the, and take the fancy out of it a little bit and just make it so it's stripped back. And within months, I started to see, you know, hundreds of people, maybe a few thousand people do this course. And then I did in-person workshops. I decided I would like to people again at the end of that year. And it was twofold in that this took on a life of its own in that people really resonated with it. But it was also beneficial for me in those times as well, because I was finding some sense in something horrific and, and putting it somewhere, you know? So, so going from, you know, being an actor into the world of self-development for a lot of other people. And I often get asked it when I'm doing magazine interviews and in interviews and stuff on TV. It's like, oh, so how did you go from being an actor into this world? It, it has been that tragic and difficult journey but also it was always very interlinked for me. So, and you'll know as an actor, you you learn about a character, you get in that character's head, and then you pretend to be that character. So the difference for me now is I learn about my clients. I learn about the people that I work with. I understand how their brain might be working. I just don't pretend to be them anymore. Although I did say to one of my clients the other day, I'm, I'm starting to think maybe I should just for fun, like now and then just chuck that in. Let me just do a little impression of you as well. But I, I tried not. I try not to do that. Um, but, you know, there's not there's so many similarities in that world. Like we are as actors, we're exploring the mind and how and what makes us tick and what makes yep. that character tick. Like it's so similar. And that's why I think a lot of actors go into that world because we're so 
we've been doing it. Which yeah, is- I, that, that's I completely relate, and that's exactly been my experience as well. I've always the thing I loved about acting so much was I loved the performance, you know, and I loved I loved the round of applause and all that. But I loved the journey of creating the character and exploring the psychology. The psychology's yeah. always fascinated me, yeah. and I think you know, uh, as has been talked about your book, it you, what makes you so unique, Holly, in this uh, industry because there is a lot of bullshit, let's be honest. Um, but what makes you and your book so unique, hence why it's a bestseller, is that you just strip back all that bullshit. You're so real. You're so honest. You have, like, I can't get my head around what you have been through and how you have found the positive and your resilience. And so before I carry on and kind of we we again shift gears into a different direction, I would just love to know, like, what for anyone listening like what is the biggest lesson that you learned in that whole journey going through that experience with your husband that you feel would really be useful for someone else regardless of what they're going through like we all go through shit in in different times what's the one thing that you would want to say I think the the thing that comes up the most is acceptance and recognizing where your control lies like yeah I could have sat there watching my husband die and when and been thinking and sort of had the mindset of I don't want this to happen I don't want it and almost that that gripping to a reality that was shifting beneath me and I think if I had done that I know that the pain would have been tenfold because the reality was happening there are things in our life that we have absolutely no control over other people. You know, you you obviously talk about love and relationships. There are times in relationships when somebody else is ending that relationship and you can claw on with all you are, all your worth onto them. But you will be just causing yourself pain because the, the acceptance for me was key. And I sat in the, the grounds of the hospice and I was doing my meditations were always, and I do meditate. I, I, I'm a moving meditation person. I like to sway and move when I meditate. I don't sit still. So don't think you have to people that think of meditation in a certain way, but I would meditate and I would, my whole meditation was around acceptance and acceptance of what is that doesn't mean you want it. So when people don't get confused with acceptance because acceptance isn't about I want this to be happening of course you don't but you in the difficult stuff but what you do want is acceptance of what is so then you can look at what can I control in these moments and the other thing I would say as well was a huge thing for me was protecting my space and putting boundaries in place to protect that space and actually when you're going through a difficult time it is the one time in your life or many times in your life when you'll experience these when you can be ruthless in your boundaries because yeah. people will accept it. I mean, people would have accepted anything of me in that time. Like, mm-hmm. it was a tough time. So they would have accepted it. But I was really conscious that the story that I told myself in this moment would be my lived experience. And so even I was conscious of the language I was using, you know, people would ask, you know, how are you getting on? And I would have been absolutely within my right to say and live and breathe in nightmare. And not once did that. And has that ever ever been left not as once as that left my mouth because Mm -hmm. I don't want to live that I could experience and I know that sounds so maybe that sounds fluffy to people but when you are in these moments it's I was militant on what was allowed in my space if you are going to bring your bullshit story to me about how your friend is a widow and they've they're basically dead me and they're just their life is crap you can do one because I'm not interested in hearing that story. That's not my version of this. Mm -hmm. And I actually had to give myself a talking to in the hospice because 
I remember feeling like, especially because there was a lot of eyes on, it can make you spin out of your own truth and what you know to be true to yourself. And you start thinking, well, should I be thinking like this? And should I be doing this? And you start doing the shoulds with yourself. And there was a moment where I had it. And then I thought, because I was thinking, you know, should I look like this? Should I, because I was like getting ready and put my makeup on. That was my level of what I could control. I could wash my hair and I could put makeup on. And that made people feel very uncomfortable. Why does she look? good (laughs) that must that like it makes people feel maybe she didn't love him then it's such a weird thing and I had that genuinely on on my YouTube channel and stuff but that was my control I could control that I can Mm -hmm. do the makeup I can't do nothing else I can't do anything about that but I can do that and that felt like control like I didn't want to see that when I looked in the mirror I didn't want to see the pain in the mirror I wanted to like Botox the shit out of my face and like make it feel nice I didn't look so sad and and I was fine with that um, but I think it was me sitting down with myself and going, you've not lived your life in any way how it was expected you should live. Mm-hmm. Not at any point before this, you know, as an actor, in my work outside of acting, how have the choices I've made in life have made other people often feel uncomfortable because it's not the way you do things. And I had to really recognize that and go, why do you think you're going to be a widow in the way that it's comfortable for everybody else, mm-hmm. which is? Me seeing things like, you know, me wearing the black veil and me looking crap and me going, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to get through this without my children, which is what people wanted me to say, which is ridiculous. It makes it way harder when you've got grieving people with you as well who are in pain. That's way harder. That doesn't that doesn't make people think, oh, well, you, you've got through this because of the kids. And I'm like, I didn't want to die. Like I, I, I didn't like I didn't want to give up. And Ross wouldn't have accepted that either. Like he would have been, you know. He'd been like, get up, you can crack on. Like we live, or we, we're alive or we're not. Like he was, he thought like that as well. And so I think just protecting your space, being really ruthless, really ruthless with your boundaries, being mindful of the story you're telling yourself about the situation because you get to choose. I could have chosen the, it's a nightmare to live and breathe a nightmare. But I chose to say to people when they asked, how are you? I chose to say, I'm okay. I'll be better. That was the phrase I said a lot. I'll, I'm okay. I'll be better. That that was, and that was enough to not bullshit my, you know, not to be so bullshit that my subconscious was like, are we though? Mm-hmm. Um, but also not, but enough for me to pull myself through to the next stage of whatever that was. And, and it be enough to be a better story than it's a living, breathing nightmare. Totally. Uh, so useful and important to remember whatever's going on. It's like it's our narrative around the situation. And that's what's so powerful about your your experience and, and the way you've handled it. So shifting gears. Um, one of the things you share in your book is that growing up as a child actress meant you were extremely driven and Mm -hmm. often felt different from your peers. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is a lot of um, women I work with and who will listen to this podcast episode are very successful in their careers and they struggle in their love life. So I'm interested in going back to when you were a child actor, like, and, and feeling extremely driven and sort of like different from others in that way. How did that impact your love life as a teenager and into your early twenties? Oh, um, yeah. So I think feeling different and always knowing, always felt like an alien, always felt. And I, I think, um, my neurodivergence, um, diagnosis as an adult explains some of that but I also think a lot of people within that sort of artistic space experience that in general I felt completely different to my peers and I felt like a lot of the time I was 
looking to fit in because as humans that's the human thing we want to be part of a group a tribe or something so I was in school I would have been classed as the the popular kids um but I was acting like I know that sounds a weird thing I was playing a part of the popular kids probably off like American TV shows I'd seen and inside I was this dorky like nerd going what I'm, I'm I knew I was playing a part like I that sounds so contrived and I think a lot of neurodivergent people will understand that as well but I I was playing a part of of what that looked like and part of that so when it come came to sex and stuff like that I didn't have the same boundaries that other people had I didn't ever and I I've explored this many times I've explored this a lot and wondered why did I not have the boundaries there was I didn't, I, there was, I felt completely comfortable with sex always. And I think there's an, I think in the acting world, and maybe this is part of it, there's such an honesty and such an openness in, we lean into our, in the spaces when I was in, when I was on set, when we lean into who we are and we're completely accepted in those spaces. So on TV, being in front of a camera to me is my safe space, completely safe there, completely myself, can be myself. When I'm on a TV set, I recently did a, a comedy series. It came out on Amazon yesterday, just a short little series. It was really fun for me because I wasn't a big part. I had to come down, just it was really fun. The minute you're on the, those sets, and I felt this not that long ago, you go on there, you're with other actors who just splurge out their you know their trauma their diagnosis their love life their feelings they're just not bothered and so I grew up around that and so I think for me like sex and relationships felt very much like that and I think when I was very young I just so desperately wanted to fit in and everyone around me was having sex and doing all of that stuff and I was like well that's I guess the natural thing I do and I never felt weird about that don't ever think that that means I felt uncomfortable because I actually didn't at all mm-hmm. and I but I think there was an element of people pleasing around that as well that I'll fit in if everybody's doing that then I'll do that and there was definitely a level of fitting in within that space and and so from very young I oh sorry somebody's just trying to call me let me just stop that um from very young I I just didn't really um I didn't really have any worries about that my first boyfriend I think every actually looking back every sort of partner I had was very much um frowned upon a little bit by everybody else which I think is interesting to look at (laughs) oh I know that feeling (laughs) it was it was that shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that I'm very much the natural rebel like I want to I think that's just within some people like they just want to do what they're not they're told they're not supposed to do Mm -hmm. and so my first proper boyfriend I met in Magaluf and (laughs) brilliant fantastic um and then but then was very like then I don't know if there's a level of wanting to prove that that relationship was valid by making it valid and I think there was that and we were together for like six years and you know he's not a horrible person he was he was in his space and at the time he was the person I'd prior to that I'd kind of went for the, the alpha Mm -hmm. males of like whoever was the hardest in Mm -hmm. my school and whatever and it was all that and I I think I was always seeking leadership and I was always seeking somebody that stood out from the crowd so if so I can spot that and maybe you feel the same like I can spot the alpha female I can spot the alpha male across a room and I know and I can all and I also know and then maybe this is an awful thing to say but I also know how to take both those people down if I needed to Mm. like something I learned like I had to learn it because 
in those early formative years of being in school, I had to learn that for a level of survival. I was the kid on TV. So I, I can see all of those things. And I think I naturally gravitated towards those alpha people. Like those people, mm-hmm. they're the ones in top. They're good at what they do, whatever that is. They're great yeah. at what they do. I want to be around them. And I always found that. And so actually my first boyfriend was the opposite of that because I'd realized the people I was kind of going towards weren't treating me very nicely. He was the opposite, which wasn't necessarily the right move. It was just, it felt nice to be Mm -hmm. the person on the pedestal. And -hmm. it felt nice to be that for a moment. And I think I kind of longed that relationship out for a long time. And then I met my husband after that. And although there'd been many relations, not really relationships, there would have been many escapades before Mm -hmm. that. Um, when when I met my husband, I was with the 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 guy at the time, and I met my husband, and he was a breath of fresh air, like he was. And I'd always been very very um, you don't cheat on people, you don't like it was such an ingrained thing, like very childlike black and white mentality to it. And I met him, and the second we met, there was a connection and a something and a okay, that's changed things. And I, and again, this is my impulsivity and of things. We, I met my husband. I was on a job for, uh, for PIMS, for a promotional modeling type job. And we're working on this job. I met him. The next day I went back to Essex where I lived and broke up with the partner of six years who I had a mortgage and a dog with mm. and um, got on the mega bus because I didn't drive. I got the mega bus to Coventry and didn't come back. And everybody else around me was like, oh my God out of the frying pan into the fire <laughs> was this phrase that was used many times and I'm so glad that I have that bravery because and you know what when I was when I go through your stuff I love what you say and you you said something recently um and I thought it was, I've written it down because it was so important you wrote down attraction is easy but growing and building a vision with someone now that is an art attraction's a piece of piss Mm. Finding someone you fancy, finding someone you can be attracted to. And actually, I think, and again, I I don't need to keep harping back to actors, but people who are actors and are feely people or self-development people, we're so in touch with everything. Unfortunately, we can meet people and they can have a connection with us that we aren't having with them. Mm. So we can meet people and I, and you in friendships and in relationships where we're just all in, like, because that's how we are with everybody. Mm. And they're like, Oh my God, I've never met anyone like this before. I've never connected in this way. And we're in our heads. Like I have, (laughs) I did it like on the bus with someone like last week. Like it's not that it gets not that for you. And, and so attraction is very easy and, you know, fun times and sex and all of that could be very easy and, and throw away. But genuine connection with someone takes something else. It takes both people letting go of stuff. And I think for Ross and I, we did have that in that we were just like, this is how we are. And we spent our time together partnering around drinking cups of tea and and just being very honest and very brutally honest as well with each other like horribly so to other people mm-hmm. but I you know I always say to friends now I'm like you've almost got to audition people like this is not like you've got to like Ross used Ross said before me like Ross was prolific in Coventry like he had completed Coventry in the world yeah, completed love that <laughs> it was completed um and so <laughs> He, when I came to Coventry, people would be like, oh, you're his, his girlfriend. Oh, okay. And I was like, you've had sex with her, you? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and so like when he said genuinely, he'd similarly just kind of was bored of it. 
And he said, he said, I wanted to meet a foreign girlfriend um, because I thought she would like not know me and not know anything about me. It would be different. And he's like, so your Geordies are basically foreign. So, um, you know, like it, <laughs> it works, it works. But I think there was that honesty. Like even when we first met, I came to Coventry and he said to me, let's not remember each other's phone numbers because like then if we, if it doesn't work out, we won't like drunk call each other and stuff. We'll just delete each other's numbers. And I'll get you a, I'll get you a rail, like a clothing rail in my house. Cause I'd brought my suitcase and it was like, but like, it's just a rail. So like, if we, we were like, if we just don't get on, like, it's just a rail, we could just move it. Like, and I think that honesty was so refreshing for me. Like, I don't know how to deal with people's lack of being explicit in what they want and what they don't want. And I just think that's how, that's how we have connection. Like when both parties are like, this is what I like, this is what I don't like on everything, whether it's food, sex, where your holiday, your working life, whatever. Like if you can be like, this is how I enjoy it. And there's a level of like, you know, sharing and and moving that for each other. But that's how you have real connection. The uncomfortable bits are the best bits. They're the bits where you're weird and mucky and weird. Like that's the, if you can connect and you're weird, then you're spot on, you're sound. Do you know, it's so funny. I did, uh, I did a really powerful workshop yesterday, which was all around healing the sister wound. And like, I, I am, I'm a weird contradiction because in some ways I am so direct. Like with men, I've never found it hard to be direct. There's a few men, there, there was a trauma bond where I, I did a little bit, but generally speaking, that's not been my issue. Where I have really struggled is with, and not all women, but certain women that trigger me in some way. And it's like this fear that if I tell the truth about how I feel um, or what I need, what's important to me, that they will reject me and run away and leave me and not love me anymore. And it's something that's been, it's like, I'm only now really starting to fully be ready to deal with it, having been doing work on myself and self-development for like over 11 years now. So it's it's really interesting and very synchronistic that you share that because actually the irony is that until we are brave enough, and, and I say this, I see it with my clients, you know, for me, it's not hard to communicate with men, but for a lot of them, it is. It's like, until you were brave enough to say, this is who I am, that hurt me, or this this feels good to me, um, and this is what I need. And if that doesn't work for you, that's okay, then we're not in alignment. And I really love you and wish you well. Yeah. That is how you... That's actually how you create and cultivate safety and trust in a relationship. And so it's been it's been hard for me to like see all the ways that I haven't really let let certain women see who I am because of the fear of rejection. But yeah, it's a good reminder. So thank you for sharing that. No, you're welcome. And it's so interesting that you said the female side, because I think that's that's definitely something that I have been triggered with, because Mm. I think when you are a female that has traditionally masculine energy in certain respects that can be very uncomfortable in female relationships because it is seen as either performative or that you want to dumb it down because it makes other people feel uncomfortable that you feel Mm -hmm. what is traditionally more masculine whether it's in sex sex tends to be the obvious place for that that it, there's a judgment around that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't be rude. You shouldn't speak up. You Whatever it is in whichever area. And I think certainly in the um, entrepreneurial space, we, we work with a lot of very direct women. Mm-hmm. And often these women feel quite isolated because in their female, aside from relationship relationships, but in their female relationships that they can't truly be themselves for fear of seeming too masculine. 
Mm. It's, and, and I found this yeah. I muted myself 100 like so many times 100% like turned it down because I felt like this doesn't fit into the feminine stuff like I'm, I don't know what when people talk about feminine energy and masculine energy people have said I, I don't really get it massively other than my experience of a person in a traditional masculine female role um, so I don't know what it sits in the spiritual world. So maybe I'm saying that in the wrong way for that. But I've often had people say to me that I have a masculine energy and I have never felt that because I'm quite feminine in my <laughs> and all that. So I was like, oh, I don't really get it. But I think it's more when people it's a directness that people yes. see as masculine energy. And yeah, yeah. and I think in a fem- in female bonds that can make you quite fearful, can't it? To mm-hmm. next, because if I really give you it all, are you ready for it? or not because yeah. I don't yeah. I feel a lot of the time that we feel then that people aren't I certainly do I often find if I told you it full out how it is I think I'm not sure you could hold space for that and so that yeah. does really interesting conversation actually you make me think about it mm. I could <laughs> excuse me frog in the throat I could talk to you all day Holly but we're gonna have to start rounding this up and what I always like to finish with uh, my guests on this ep- uh, on this podcast, uh, what I call the home straight questions. Ooh, so they're like lightning round questions. Go for Just it. Answer whatever comes into your head first. What love life advice would you give to your 15 year old self? Oh, um, I would say um, lean into your weird and don't accept any less than people who can hold space for that. Love that. What's one thing you don't want people to know about you? Ooh, I feel like I would just not want people to know about it. I don't know. I I feel like everyone knows a lot of stuff. Um, what would I not want people to know? Or what might okay? What pe- might people be surprised to know about you? That I guess I think a lot of the time people are surprised that I am extremely sensitive. Mm. I, I don't think people would necessarily see that in me. I cry at a lot of stuff. I'm a real crier. Love crying. And I cried a lot of stuff and I'm really sensitive as a human being. Uh, all my emotions are in my throat, all of them. So mm. there all the time, all of them are there. So I think maybe people will be surprised at that because they see the reframed, ver- like as in I reframe things very quickly and I get through things and bounce back very quickly. So maybe that, maybe sensitivity, mm. something people didn't know. Love that. So before the final question, where can people find out more about your work? Okay, so if they head to IamHollyMatthews.com slash all my stuff, they will find my podcast, my Instagram, my book, whatever I'm up to at that time. I do hang out on Instagram. I am being better on TikTok. Um, I'm going to be much more on there as well. And um, I do hang out on Facebook as well. There is a Facebook group for the Happy Me Project. Um, where people can hang out and have a, a safe space to land if they need to. Uh, but Instagram is probably the, the space they'll find me the quickest. Perfect. I will make sure those are linked in the show notes for this episode. So final question. What is the number one piece of advice you would give to any single woman who is listening to this right now, who is thriving in her career, but is struggling in her love life? Don't settle. Don't settle for mediocre don't settle because you'll only ever feel rubbish just don't settle just and don't give up just keep being honest keep putting yourself in spaces where potentially the right people are but don't settle because you will only ever feel small and it will it might be feel nice in the moment um but just yeah don't settle that would be my biggest thing Mm. 
You've been an amazing guest. You are so, so, so inspiring. Your energy is infectious in the best way. I always think that word's a bit of a funny one. But thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, everyone who's listening, go and re- read, get and read Holly's amazing book, The Happy Me Project. It will absolutely inspire you. And uh, yeah, I know it will help you transform the areas of your life that you are struggling with at the moment. Thank you so much, Holly. You're so welcome. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope this episode served you and gave some practical insights and strategies around the next steps in transforming your love life from the inside out. Do come and let me know over on Instagram what resonated for you the most and why. I am at Persia Lawson. And if you want more tips and tools on how to become a vibrational match for the powerful, committed relationship that you deserve, check out my book, Love is Coming, as well as my programs and coaching containers over at persialawson.com. This website is also linked in this episode's show notes. And if you got value from this episode, I'd be so grateful if you'd like, subscribe, share, and or leave a quick review. This helps the podcast rank higher so it can reach other women who want or need the support. And to have your question answered, send it over to podcast at persialawson.com and we'll get to it ASAP. Until next time, I want you to remember that love is coming for you. But in the meantime, it's your responsibility to stop looking outside of yourself for the partner you want to get and start looking inside of yourself for the partner you want to be.